This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Now, if your ears are are well-trained, you can no doubt hear there's something wrong with my voice. So um, I, uh, I'm actually recovering from, how do we put this, Sam, the symptoms of COVID? <laughs> um, I've had basically COVID, uh, and I got it not from breathing it in, <clears throat> but I got it from the vaccine booster. So uh, to everybody that sees the little posters from the CDC that says you cannot get COVID from the uh, vaccine, I will tell you from personal experience firsthand, this is from me, that that's only true because they won't classify what I have as COVID. It's classified as vaccine side effects. The side effects happen to be all the symptoms of COVID. <clears throat> You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I figured out that's how they did that poster. You cannot catch COVID. Well, I test negative for COVID every time because there's no, there's no virus in my nasal passages or in my throat because I didn't get it from inhaling it. I got it from a nurse sticking my arm with a needle. Um, but, just cut out the metal man. Just, yeah, just get just, right, right into just the right to it. So I appreciate uh, Will filling in for me last week. Um, I feel well enough this week. I'm I'm a little out of breath still all the time, and my voice isn't back yet. But I'm going to do the best I can today. Um, at least the brain fog is gone. I last week I literally could not have done the podcast. I would have been a babbling idiot. And I'm, I might be a babbling idiot all the time anyway, but I would have been a babbling idiot by anybody's measure last week. Um, so. Mark, you would, have, you would have enjoyed watching Will and I. We, we had this large stand-up round table with a mic in the middle of it. Then we both had to lean over the table to get close enough for the mic to catch good audio. And so we were seesawing back and forth. <laughs> it, it, it was a ridiculous sight. Well, as long as I stay seated, I seem to be fine. It's only when I actually need to stand up and move around. So I've got my uh, – I'm in my very comfortable office chair in my home in Davie, and I'm hanging in there. Um, I'll be back in the saddle this week for personal worship too. I appreciate Will covering for me that way last week as well. Um, I tell you, folks, it's uh, – you know, our church is a – you hear the message being preached, family first, take care of yourself, you know, that kind of thing. And you think, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they walk that talk. Um, I have been a member of this church for 36 years. I have been an employee of this church going on 15 years now. And every single time that I have been in a situation where I genuinely needed help, I, it's like it comes from all sides. Everybody's like, we'll cover it. We got you. You know, just take care of yourself. Um, and people praying for you, people picking up your slack for you. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I, I love this place so much. You know, everybody here walks the talk. And That's true. Hundred percent. So a lot of people who love well. Yes, indeed, we do love very well indeed. So 
Um, this brings us this week to the third chapter of Mark's Gospel, where we are continuing to talk about the identity of Jesus and what we can learn from what Mark told us about Jesus. Um, this chapter has a number of really interesting stories in it, mm-hmm. and it has one in particular that I think has caused a great deal of, I don't want to say controversy, but certainly a lot of differences of opinion. Yeah, I'd say controversies. Okay, controversy. Uh, when we get into the subject of the, the uh, you know, what is the unpardonable sin? What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? So uh, we'll be talking about that today as well. But we begin uh, at verse 1. The first section here is a story of Jesus encountering a man with a withered hand. Um, since my voice is what it is, Sam, could you read the first section for us, please? <laughs> I'd be happy to. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it says, so you got to remember, in chapter 2, what we talked about last week, it's ending with the religious leaders coming after Jesus because his disciples were plucking grain out in the fields. And so they really hit him hard on, hey, they're violating the Sabbath. And so now where we pick up in chapter three, it's the Sabbath. All of the the faithful Jews are coming into the synagogues. And then there's this cohort of religious leaders that have made it their mission in life to just really catch Jesus and to prove him to not be a faithful uh, rabbi or a prophet or definitely not the Messiah. And so so here we go. It says, again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And the whole idea of the withered hand is there's a couple of different ways that people do it. Basically, the nerves in his hand have either died or he is so arthritic that it is literally frozen into place. Yeah, he mi- has n- misshapen or something. Yeah. yeah, he has no use of it. It's it's you know you can imagine all your knuckles just kind of bent in. And it says as they watch Jesus, so you, you already get the impression of what these guys are like. Here they are, <laughs> they're in the synagogue for a worship service, and what are they doing? They're just watching Jesus. I mean, it's like, have you ever been a teacher when someone comes in to evaluate you? You know, you feel the stress of everything that comes out of your mouth. Am I saying the right thing? They're not interested in what he has to say. They only want to find the mistake. They only are looking for the air. Have you ever wondered whether they put the guy with the withered hand in there? I've always wondered in this story. Uh, Yeah. It's like he entered the synagogue and conveniently, I'm adding, this is a Lautenschlager word, and conveniently, (laughs) a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus, right? They're looking to see what's he going to do when he sees the guy's hand. Yeah, right after that, it says they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. And so it's like they, they, they've they got the guy picked out. It's like, there he is. He's got the withered hand. Jesus isn't going to be able to resist this. He's going to want to heal the guy. Let's catch him. So you, you do it. It makes you wonder, like, okay, did they know he was going to be there? And so they come and they're watching to see if Jesus heals him, or did they bring him as a plant and say, okay, you sit close over here. That'll be where he is and and try to you know catch him up. And so, yeah, these people are really wicked. Like, there are some people, and it it continues down into church to this day, where it feels like there's some people who show up to churches just so they can pass judgment and have the critical eye and say, well, you know, this was off or that was off or the music was this or, you know, this doctrine or – and, you know, thankfully we don't have that at Rio, but I've been parts of other ministries where it's like, (laughs) man, people love – to challenge you on every small, the smallest things. 
um, critical spirit. I've always found, Sam, that it was the people that were the most interested in the rules mm-hmm. of the church totally. and the 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 way the, the church polity, the way by things, the way things are run. And it's the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law kind of thing. Mm-hmm. If you love the letter of the law, hey, there's there's going to be churches out there that are just perfect for you, and you can come <laughs> in and just be up in everybody's grill. Um, I'm really glad that our church is not one of those churches that we are far more focused on. You know, what's the spirit doing? What's you know what's we're we're looking to advance the gospel, and <clears throat> we don't get caught up in this kind of power yeah, broker thankfully. stuff. Yeah. I remember when I was brand new coming into ministry, I was in seminary, and one of my seminary professors was doing a really nice thing, uh, filling in for a pulpit where the, the pastor had gotten sick and was doing an incredible job. Like, in, in addition to carrying all of his responsibilities as a seminary professor and everything that he was doing on one side, he was also taking on all these responsibilities for the church and everything else. Really something that I appreciated, and I remember <laughs> walking by his office and I popped my head in and I said, hey, I just want you to know I appreciate all that you're doing. Like, I, I really do. And he just kind of waves waves at me to come in. And he was in the middle of going through his voicemails on his phone. And so he repeated one that he was just playing that when I walked by. And it was a guy. And it was Mother's Day. So we're coming up on Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Um, but anyway, it was Mother's Day weekend then, too. And the voicemail was some – it was a guy who was like – I am so offended that you would preach a Mother's Day message and not mention Mary, the mother of God, and start screaming into the phone. And he he looks at me. Yeah, crazy. Like, that guy needs some help. Um, But he he just looks at me with a kind of half-cock grin, and he was like, it's a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember thinking, what am I getting myself into with this ministry? But those people are out there, you know, that just look to find where somebody else is falling short so that they can be critical. And that's the spirit of these guys. They're watching Jesus to see if he's going to heal a guy so that they can accuse him. Imagine that. Crazy. So verse 3, it says, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. It's like Jesus is saying, all right, (laughs) you want to pick an ideological fight? I'm in. Yeah. Come here. And so he said to them. So he's talking to the whole synagogue, the whole crowd, and he says, okay, I got a question for you. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And so the the Jews of the first century were super strict about Sabbath, like wildly strict. But everyone, even, even the, the most rules-oriented Jew of that day would say, if, it's, if you need to do something to save a life, you have to make an exception to save a life. Yeah, the donkey in the well kind of thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. If you, it falls into a ditch, you've got to help them out. If somebody's dying, you've got to help them out. They even had rules that if you, if you in, had an injury and you were bleeding, you could, you could heal the – you could – Tend to the wound to get it to stop bleeding, but you weren't allowed to put ointment on it that might cause it to get better. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was so ridiculous, Mark. You read about some of the early controversies of what they would do and how legalistic they they were. In fact, let me just—I'll give you some of them um, that are in the the Talmud. You know, I just try to imagine what it would have felt like to feel like that's the kind of god that you had to worship. Because because one of the things that I have always relied on is that my God understands me, mm-hmm. and that my God is is 
you know, it's like he's not trying to cause to cause me to stumble. And it's almost like the Jews were looking at God like, he's trying to trip us up. He's trying to get us to do wrong. We've got to like, you know, we've got to like watch where we're stepping. Yeah. And, and it's not even more than that. It's like, so it's one, it's not a God who trips you up, but it's, it's totally mischaracterizing who God is. Like the heart of the scriptures is a God who desperately wants to be in relationship with his people. Right. And so the whole point of the Sabbath is God coming to people who were former slaves and he gives them a law that says it's not about what you do and it's not about what you produce. I want you to stop all that stuff. You're not defined by what you do. I want you to come and rest and be with me. And so what humanity does, what the religious kind of goofballs do in response to that is like, oh, he gave us a rule? Well, let's make up all these other rules and we're going to surround the rules with more rules. And, and they try to go about working to earn God's favor – by making all these rules when he's like, no, 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 I just want you to rest and be with me. Stop right. all that. You know. But they listen to this list. This is from the Talmud of things in the first century they would say you couldn't do. It, it's crazy. Some of them I like. You weren't allowed to do laundry. I'm, I'm all in for that. <laughs> no cooking. So you had to prepare your meals beforehand. Writing. Erasing, no tearing, no tying knots or untying knots. You couldn't sew. You couldn't separate threads. You couldn't measure a cut, like if you're cutting wood, you couldn't take measurements. You couldn't smooth out materials. You couldn't light a fire. You couldn't extinguish a fire. You couldn't carry things on the open side of your hand, but you could carry things on the back side of your hand. You couldn't carry items between property lines. You couldn't spit on the ground because it might cause things to grow. Like they had come up with a list of these absurd rules that were oppressive and so imagine walking into that culture because that's not just them. That's in the synagogue. That's the expectation. And so they're looking at Jesus who's just claimed to be Lord of the Sabbath. And he has said things like, you know what? The Sabbath was made for man. It was God's gift to us to give us a gift to say, you know, you're valued because you're mine, not because of what you do. So just come be with me. And so Jesus has just said all of this to them. And now they're there because in that culture, it's like, is he going to break the rule? Can we shred him because he's going to heal a guy? And that's, I mean, that's, that's the heart they have. It's, it's wild. So he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And he wants an answer. Like, should I do good? Like, if I'm capable of bringing life to this man and healing to this man, would it be the right thing for me to do it or the right thing to withhold it? And they know they're caught, so they choose to remain silent, it says. Yeah, it wasn't a rhetorical question. He expected them to say, <laughs> you save life. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You, you do good. Yeah. You bring life. You restore. But they're silent. And so he looked around at them with anger, which is kind of like Jesus got angry. When he sees injustice, when he sees cruelty, you know, the heart of our God gets angry and it says he grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand, which is a command that, hey, you've been healed. Stretch out your hand. And this guy who had this withered hand that was locked into place uh, for a long time all of a sudden moves his hands, and his fingers all stretch out, and life is restored to his hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out. And so what's their response to seeing this guy's life being changed for the better? The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him and how to destroy him. And so Jesus is making 
enemies. The Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other, but now they've found someone they hate more than the other ones. <laughs> you know, the Pharisees yeah. hated Jesus more than the Herodians, and the Herodians hated Jesus more than the Pharisees. So they come together. And that from that point, because he healed a man on the Sabbath and he's breaking the religious rules, they're determined we need to kill him. Yeah. It's very easy for all of us today in our modern – well, first of all, I don't think people even look at the Sabbath to start with, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, you don't look at it as being anything that's part of your relationship with your father, with God. You look at it as being a day in which – you get in these leisure activities, you know, it's like, okay, well, it's a day off from work. Mm-hmm. But that was not, you know, the, the, the purpose of the Sabbath from God's perspective was that we would step aside from our ordinary work, our ordinary efforts, and that then we would spend that time with him, you know, mm-hmm. in, in worship or just, you know, and, and so I, I find this an interesting thing because today, we don't have these like religious Sabbath rules, like you can't all the things that you read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we have just as rigid a view of the Sabbath. The Sabbath isn't for like I, go, you know, spend time in 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 worship, in, in prayer, spend time with God. No, that's what I. Hey, the, the dolphins play on Sunday. I've got to you know, I've got to mow my lawn. I've got. We have this list of things that are. Either, either leisure activities or their work that's not our regular work, but we're just as committed that they have to occur on that day. We've just substituted one set of Sabbath rules for another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember when we lived in a condo in Palm Air, we had some, some residents that were also in our building who were um, Orthodox Jews. And when you came to the Sabbath for them, they still have some of these really, really intense rules. They have to have all of the lights in their condo set on timers because they're not allowed to turn on or off lights. Uh, when they get in the elevator, they have to wait for someone else to press the button because that's considered work. Um, you know, and you see this, and and they're super faithful. They're super faithful about it. You don't get the sense that they're you know upset people or anything like that, but. They believe that that is, you know, one way to honor God. But you look at it and you're like, why? Why would God, you know, put that kind of? It's harder. It's more draining to sit and wait for someone to press a button <laughs> than to just press the button. Like you're working harder at maintaining your patience. Um, and and that's, you know, when you come at it with that point, you're you're absolutely right. The heart behind the Sabbath, the reason why God gave it to us, is He wants relationship with us. You know, you go to, to any marriage counselor, and one of the things you'll hear more often than not is if you have a relationship that's struggling between a husband and wife, virtually every counselor is going to say, you need to set aside time on your calendar for a date night. Right. And, you know, so that you can spend time with each other, so that you can get to know each other more, so that you, you're expressing your love for one another and, and building each other up. And when God gives the Sabbath, he's saying, hey, I, I want, I'm going to set aside time on, on my schedule. I want you to set aside time on your schedule where the two of us are going to come together and we're going to enjoy one another and we're going to you know, get to know each other more and all of those kinds of things. I mean, that's a simplistic way of, of putting it. Sure. But that's the heart of it. He's after relationship. And so all of humanity responds to every, <laughs> everything that God does toward us that's rooted in love. And we make it about rules. We yeah. make it oppressive. We make right. it some kind of slavery. And that was totally 
what Jesus was facing, and he's just like, no, you know, the Sabbath is about God drawing near to his people, and if that means I get to heal this person who's been suffering, that's God drawing near to his people. Of course I'm going to do that. Right. Well, I'm going to do good. And let's answer the question that I think that some people at this point would ask, which is, well, you know, Pastor Sam, are you saying that I'm supposed to spend my entire Sabbath day in Bible study and prayer and nothing else? And no, we're not saying that. What we, I think what we are saying here is that everything that you do on the Sabbath should be something in which you are having a sense of, of the, of the appreciation of your, of God, your father, of, you know, I had a friend that used to, uh, was fond of boating and mm-hmm. used to talk about, you know, is it wrong for me to take my boat out on Sunday? And I said, well, no, not at all. I said, if, if you're taking your boat out to rest and relax, with your family and you appreciate the beauty of God's creation and you're grateful for God's provision that you can have this boat and you're grateful for your family and for God, you know, being, I said, if, if God is a part of this, if God is with you in this, that's perfectly fine. I said, but if it's like a thing of, Hey, you know, 3 PM, I've got to be at the bass fishing launch because I've got to, if it, if it's becoming (laughs) this kind of, of, um, if Stress. It's stressful. If it's not restful, if it's something that by its very nature of its stressfulness excludes mm-hmm. any thoughtfulness toward God, then I would say, yeah, you should probably not do that on the Sabbath. Yeah. So our confession of faith, just to be fair, I'm a Presbyterian minister, and so the the document that governs what we believe as a church is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And whenever you're a pastor and you're coming up to ordination, before they will embrace you as an ordained pastor in our denomination, you have to say, you know, I agree with everything in this document except, and then you have to tell them any place that you disagree. And it is such an expected ritual that every single person who gets ordained in our denomination gets up and says, because the Westminster Confession of Faith says that you should not take recreational views of the Sabbath, that you should devote the entire day you know, to, to kind of focused worship. And then there's an exception and a view that's called the continental view of the Lord's Day. And what that is is what you're talking about, where you're not only engaging in prayer and worship, which is essential. Like that has to be part of the Sabbath. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, being with God's people, you know, drawing near to him, praising him, all of that's essential. But it's saying it does not restrict going out in the boat, like enjoying God's creation. You know, part of what God does on the seventh day is he's finished his work. You know, every day he's saying it's good, it's good, it's good. On the sixth day he says it's very good. And on the seventh day, it's not just that he's with his people. He's enjoying his creation. He's enjoying the work of his hands. He's looking at everything and saying, man, this is really wonderful. And he's resting and enjoying what he has made. And, you know, the Sabbath day is also for that. It's, it's, it's drawing near to the Lord, absolutely essential, that part. But then it's also saying, my, my goodness, you've blessed me overwhelmingly. I'm going to take my family to the park. Yep. Because this is your gift to me, and I'm going to celebrate and enjoy you by enjoying the gifts that you've given to me. And that's every bit legitimate worship. Yes. In yeah. my view. Yeah. So I took that exception. Yeah. I agree with that also, obviously, because that's the position I was trying to state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you gather for a family dinner on Sundays and, and you look around the table, your heart is full of love for your family and gratefulness to God for your family. That's worship, hundred mm-hmm. percent. 
So, you know, I'm not saying that you can't have leisure activities on the Sabbath. I am saying that when we become like ritualistic and stressful and, and, and very legalistic in the structures, like, you know, it's just another day in which I, I load up with stuff that completely crowds out any thought of God. Mm-hmm. I think that's where you've gone too far. Yeah, and it says here, when Jesus encounters people who've removed worship and relationship from, from worship and they're just about the rules, in this passage, it angers him. Yeah. And it grieves his heart. Yeah. So you definitely don't want to go down that route. You need to make sure that your view of the Sabbath keeps the main thing the main thing, and that is the worship and adoration of your Savior yeah. and building your relationship with him. Yeah. So next we have uh, Jesus calling his 12 apostles. Um, I think that it's kind of interesting here, by the way, because a lot of people that I talk to, for instance, they will make assumptions as to who is an apostle. Because, for example, not all of the gospel authors were apostles. Mm-hmm. Um, Mark, for instance, is not listed among the 12 apostles. Yeah. Neither so, Luke. Yeah. So I just think it's interesting because they're always like, well, Mark was an apostle. He wrote one of the Gospels. I'm like, no, he wasn't one of the 12 apostles. Uh, So this is an interesting passage also, I think. So verse 13, I'll I'll take a shot. Oh, do you want me to do it? Okay. I'll take a shot. Let's see see how bad the old voice is here. Uh, Verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. Now, the term apostle means sent one, somebody that's being commissioned or, or sent by Jesus. It, it's the idea of, a, of, a, of an authority. It's like if Jesus mm-hmm. commissioned you as an apostle, he's giving you some of his special authority to take with you so that they may uh, might be with him and he might send them out to preach and here it is, and have authority to cast out demons. Then he lists the twelve. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. I love Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, therefore also the son of Zebedee, to whom he gave the the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. (laughs) And they lived up to that. Yeah. So they're the guys that are always like, you remember in one place, they're like, should we call down lightning on these people, a fire from heaven to consume them? They're like, they are, you know, they want to sit at Jesus' right and left hand side. They're like, they're very much like Peter and that they're, they're brash. Yes. <laughs> so yes. that's why they get that name. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus. And that's not, by the way... There's two Jameses now, right? Mm-hmm. Neither one of them are the author of the book of James. Just to, t- just to let people know how the names work out here. And Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. I remember when I was teaching, I say when I, when I first started teaching, there were all these lists, you know, like the Ten Commandments and the plagues and the Twelve Apostles and the Beatitudes and all these fruit of the spirit and my wife was raised in the church by a pastor so she's pastor's kid and she's literally got a song for everything <laughs> you know <laughs> and i used to try to remember these things and i would actually call in the middle of 
the class, and she would sing a song to help my students remember the names of the apostles. <laughs> and eventually I knew the song, but I would still call her just because it was fun in the middle of the class. And she would sing a song to the tune of Jesus Loves Me. So it's, you know, Jesus called them one by one, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Next came Philip, Thomas, to Matthew, and Bartholomew. But anyway, and the song goes on. But I couldn't, I couldn't forget that if I tried now, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and you get, you, it, really, it really is helpful. Just to wrap it up, James the one they call the less, Simon also Thaddeus, 12th apostle Judas made, Jesus was by him betrayed. And then you sang the, the chorus again. But I couldn't, I couldn't forget that song if I tried. Yes. Well, and James the son of Alphaeus was somebody that was called, what, James the lesser, right? Mm-hmm. So you have James the greater, that's James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Right. And then James the lesser. You know, and there was, you know, names, for example, back then were, hey, they were common names just like they are today. I mean, how many mm-hmm. people do you know named Mark? I know several. Yeah. Um, it's just so the the fact is that people say, why did he have two apostles named James? Well, because there were two guys named James that he thought he wanted to be an apostle. <laughs> it's, that's not a, that shouldn't be like a really big deal to anybody. Yeah. But. Yeah, there, actually, Jesus was a popular name in the first century. Very popular name. Yeah. yeah. So you have you have. I mean, it was basically Joshua, the yeah. modern equivalent of Joshua. So you do see a lot of repetition in the names yeah. for sure. So these were the twelve men that he called, that he gave authority to to send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And I think that it's kind of important to know this about the apostles because one of the things that we get into is. This argument over cessationism versus continuous, did the the gifts of the Spirit continue? I've always answered it this way. I've always said that the Holy Spirit continues, and and the work of the Holy Spirit continues, and the power of the Holy Spirit continues, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit continues, but the office of apostle was still special. Agree. These guys were special. They, you know... We certainly can be empowered by the Spirit to do amazing things. We can see the Spirit work in amazing ways. We see, even at times, we see miracles done. Mm-hmm. Not, not often. I admit that, but it happens. But these were guys that had a special authority from God. Mm-hmm. They could call upon the power of God almost in their own authority because their authority was Jesus' authority. They could say, be healed. Mm-hmm. cast out and it would be and it wasn't a matter of praying god if it be your will lift this man up they could say stand up mm-hmm. and, and and you and see that, that was different and that was different that so there was something different about the apostolic office and i think it's okay to say that to admit that and still however say that the work and the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit continue to this day, but the Agreed. office of apostle stopped when the last of these men died. Yeah. It's it's set apart, and so he's up on this mountain. He's got a big crowd in front of him, and presumably, you know, there's a, a lot of disciples. So anyone who follows Jesus is a disciple, but an apostle, like you said, especially called a pow- called out, and Jesus entrusts them. And commissions them with his authority to do things on their own. And so, like, you know, I, I pray for healing. I'll ask God to move, and I still believe that God moves, and I still believe that God does amazing things. But Jesus has not come to me and said, Sam, you have authority to heal. Right. You have authority to cast out demons in and of yourself. No, 
I'm called to go to him and ask him to do those things, but he ultimately is the one who's acting independently. Jesus was entrusting apostles. And so when the apostolic office was really important, you'll note Paul in his letters is making a case that he's an apostle because it was important. It wasn't just like, oh, I'm a really good disciple, therefore I'm promoted to an apostle. No, an apostle is somebody who heard directly from Jesus and was given authority directly by Jesus to do things. Um, And, you know, Jesus has called me to be a a shepherd and a pastor and a disciple and all of these things, but he has never commissioned me with the authority to cast out demons or, right. um, you know what, and I can pray for that. <clears throat> I can pray for healing, but I'm not guaranteed in and of myself that that power is going to work. Right. Yep. It was definitely, it was a special office and, and that does not diminish the fact that the Holy Spirit and his power and his gifts continue to this day. Mm-hmm. I'm people are like, are you a cessationist or continualist? I'm like both. <laughs> They're like, what's wrong with you? I said, I believe what the scripture says. The yeah. scripture says he called these apostles. He gave them authority. So they had some kind of special authority. Scripture also says, Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to have power and you're going to be my witnesses. So I believe that the Holy Spirit's going to come Amen. upon us and we're going to have power. and We're going to be his witnesses. Um, I, you know, is it weird to be a guy that says, I believe what the scripture says? I don't know. Apparently, apparently you have to pick, (laughs) apparently you have to pick a doctrine and stick to it and make the scriptures fit your doctrine. And I'm like, no, that's not how it works. Sola scriptura. The scriptures are the top authority. That's the principle of the reformation. I believe what the scriptures say. The scriptures say Mm -hmm. he called apostles and gave them authority. So he did. And they had authority that was different from mine. And the scriptures say that he gave us the Holy Spirit and he expects us to go in power. And I expect that we'll do that. So, sorry, I'm a scripturalist. So, anyway. Amen. I'm with you. Yeah. You know, you and I will be scripturalists. The rest of the world can be cessationists or continualists or whatever. But this is one of, this is another one of those issues that when you get into theological circles or, you know, seminary circles, this is one of those issues that gets people really fired up. Um, yeah. and I, I don't think it needs to. You know, here's here's where I will agree. If someone is claiming to have divine powers to where they think they're receiving words from God that are on par with Scripture, and that they have authority in and of you know themselves that they are speaking prophetically over people, and what they're teaching is in any way contrary to Scripture, that is an abuse. And I you know I think we need to be careful at that. And that's. That's really the heart of where these people are coming from, yeah. is to protect the church from charlatans that are going out of their way, way saying, you know, I have the power to heal. I have the power to do this. I, and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. God, God did that with the apostles. He does not do that with you, Brother Ed. You know, And so I get the heart behind why they do that. Yeah. Um, and I'm with you. Everything needs to be measured against the Scripture, everything. But God does still speak to us in certain ways. And Amen. Um, I'll give you an example of this. It happened just this week. Um, it allows me to brag on my wife, and I love to do that. Uh, there's a, a woman who attends Rio Women. She doesn't attend our church, but she attends Rio Women, and Tracy met her there. Um, they hit it off, you know, had a good conversation there, and they got together for lunch, you know, and so they've struck up this relationship and they text one another. And this woman shared with Tracy that a good friend of hers had had a child who had passed away. 
incredibly sad, just, you know, this, this tragic event. And it's obviously devastating to that family and to all that love them. So on Sunday, Tracy said that she couldn't get this woman off her mind. She just kept coming up and coming up and coming up in her mind. It's like she just kept thinking about her for some reason. And so she texts her. She just sends her a text to say, hey, I'm thinking about you. just wanted to reach out and say hi. And the woman said that Sunday was the service for the, the child. Um, mm. And I think it was even an infant. It might have been a baby. Um, and, that the, and the woman was really grateful for Tracy just reaching out just to make a human contact. Um, and I'm like, mm-hmm. I think the Lord was poking my wife on Sunday, mm-hmm. and my wife listened Absolutely. and reached out to this woman, and and they had you know an exchange, and 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 they Tracy was able to to reach out to her to say you know I care about you, and uh, you know I I'm praying for you, which she has been, she's been praying for her, mm-hmm. um, and I think that that kind of stuff when you look at that stuff, you're like, oh, that's just coincidence, really? Yeah, no, I'm I'm firmly with you. I think you know the Holy Spirit convicts. The Holy Spirit puts people on our minds. The Holy Spirit, you know, puts us in the right place for certain interactions. I believe that. Like, I think He sovereignly weaves these things together, and He's prodding us and, and nudging us toward things all the time. I, I absolutely believe that. I don't yeah. think God has stopped doing that, and I don't think many, probably even a lot of people in the pure cessationist camp would agree with what we're saying there. But I, I remember the first time I'd even come across this argument. I was in seminary, and my professor, you know, was kind of an interesting guy. He was old school, and you know, he would he would talk like this and say, "Brothers," <laughs> you know. But I remember him asking the class. He's like, "Brothers, I would like to know: Does anybody in here believe that they get words from God that are authoritative?" And someone in the front row, you know, sheepishly raised their hand because he was an intimidating guy. <laughs> he was an intimidating guy. And they raised their hand and he's like, do you believe that these words from God carry as much authority as the book I'm holding in my hand? It was the Bible. And they kind of sheepishly said, well, it's, if it's a word from God, yeah, I do. And he took a notepad that was on his podium <laughs> <laughs> and he threw it, you know, kind of spun it around to where it landed on their desk. And he says, I'd like for you to write them down so I can staple them in my Bible when we're done. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as in saying, you believe that, you know, you can add to Scripture because your words are authoritative. And that was the first time that illustration where I was like, oh, I get it. I get it. You know, the canon's closed. God's word is is finally revealed, fully spoken. Nothing can be on the same authority as the word of God. You know, apart from Jesus himself, because he's spoken. And so we measure, like you said, you're a scripturalist. We measure everything against the, the revealed word of God. Right. Um, and there's nothing that a, a person can come along saying, no, 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 you don't understand. God's, God's special with me, so I get extra words. You know, it's, it's one thing to hear from the Lord and to feel those nudges like you're talking about. But it's another thing if you hear somebody say, I speak authoritatively with every bit the same authority and weight as the scriptures, when right. you find that person run because you're near a cult. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, Tracy didn't know why this woman was on her mind. She just knew that she was. And so she reached out and and then found out why. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's the way it is when we listen to God, you know, and that's, you know, one of the great things my wife does is she prays and then she listens. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we listen to God, you know, and then we, and we, we kind of go along with his spirit those those urgings, 
we'll find out what it's about. She did find out what it was about. Mm-hmm. Um, We've had this conversation too on a separate note where where there have been people in church that have, have come and they're, they're in a messy season of life and they will look at the leadership of the church and say, God has told me that he wants me and then dot, 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 they will fill in the – the blank with something that's clearly opposed to the will of God in the scriptures. Right. And it's like, no, he did not. God is not opposed to himself. So right. if God says, you know, he desires this for us, he's not going to tell you on a separate note, eh, except for your case. I, I would like for you to do that sinful thing. Right. Um, right. And that's something, believe it or not, that you hear quite a bit in ministry. You know, the Lord told me he wants me to do this. And it's like, that. no, <laughs> he did not. Yes. Let's put it, let me just put the name to it. God does not want you to divorce your wife and marry a woman that you like better. Correct. Boom. There you go. God doesn't want you to do that. All right. You just filled in a lot of blanks. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> I'm just thinking of those conversations. Yeah, but you know? there's multiple. That's the sad thing. Yeah. And it, on both sides. And, and, you know, no, God does not want you to violate his word to satisfy your own appetites. So anyway, uh, verse 20, it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. Imagine that. (laughs) Jesus was so in demand at that point that even a basic function like trying to get him a foot long, you know, so he could grab a sub in between things here, the poor guy can't even eat. Um, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. I like that. For they were saying... He is out of his mind, which that's an interesting thing because what that mm-hmm. tells me is at this point in the life of Jesus, his family might have thought he was crazy because mm-hmm. we're always like, did Jesus' mother's mother, brothers, sisters believe in him? Eventually, yes. After the resurrection, you betcha. But And even before that. But after the resurrection, you better believe because they saw him die and they saw him come back. Because we're always like, oh, you know, if, if my brother started telling me he was the Messiah, I would think he was crazy. <laughs> well, guess what? I think Jesus' family thought he was a little crazy mm-hmm. uh, because he wasn't doing miracles. He wasn't demonstrating his power. I'm certain he said and did things that seemed odd to them. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, This lets us see, and I love things like this in the scripture because it shows us the humanity of Jesus Mm -hmm. and his relationship to his family. Jesus understands what it's like to have people misunderstand you. Mm -hmm. And and the sense of this, like – You've got to understand the the pressure that they would have that they would have felt. You know, they grow up in this very respectable family that you know goes to synagogue and is in line with everything that's been going on. And then all of a sudden, you have Jesus who is taking people that were revered, that the priests, the the Pharisees, the people who held the authority, and at every turn he is overturning the apple cart, and they're enraged. He's doing all these things on the Sabbath that had never been done. He's touching lepers that had never been done. You know, he's welcoming demoniacs into synagogues and, and healing them. What in the world are you doing? And the sense of that expression, he's out of his mind. The word behind there is like amazement or astonished. And it's, it's almost like, okay, so, something is really weird about him. He's not, and it's like he's not in his right mind. 
And it's almost like I, I picture them going – looking at all of these priests and and the people who are running the religious show and it's like they're going, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. He's causing a scene. I don't I don't know what to make of this. He's not in his right mind. You, please, please, you know, don't don't kill him. Don't don't continue with your plans. We're so sorry that you're upset. And I think they're they're embarrassed by him. You know, he's causing stinks. You have huge crowds that are coming from all over the region, it says, you know, from Tyre and Sidon and from sure. you know, some of these people up from Judea and they're coming all over the place. And some of them are walking away going, this guy's incredible. This could be a prophet. This is the Messiah. And a lot of the people with religious clout are saying he is he is making a mockery of worship. He is destroying our customs. He is – and the family, you got to imagine the pressure of that <laughs> yeah. is going, uh, uh, we're sorry. He's – you know, just be patient with us. He's, he's not in his right mind. Well, we're going we're gonna to get this figured out. I think that's more where this is – or how in my mind I imagine it. That's what I think is happening. I don't think they're looking at him saying, oh, you know, he's, he's really crazy. You know, he's, he's drooling on himself and – you know he's he's literally needs some psychotropic whatever drugs because he's you know out of it. I, I think they're saying he's just not normal. This is not him. Like something has changed. This is concerning for us too. We don't know what to make of this. Yeah, you just imagine the people coming to the family that were friends of the family saying, "You better get your boy out of there." Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you better yeah. get your boy out of there because the Pharisees are after him. Yeah, the Pharisees <laughs> and the Herodians, like. Yeah. He's making really powerful enemies yeah. in a hurry. <laughs> yeah. You you might want to get him out of here, like calm him down. It also begs the question, you know, Mary, you know, going all the way back to the nativity story, had heard from Gabriel who her son was going to be. You know, at 12 years old, she got a flavor of that when he was lost at the temple and everybody was amazed at his teaching. But we've had, you know, 18 years until he's 30 years old. Where Jesus is, you know, sinless, but just kind of ordinary. He's a carpenter. He enters into kind of the mundane life that we're all used to. And we have a hard time imagining that, you know, that for 18 years or whatever, 30 years, he's lived a rather mundane life, no miracles. He has not, you know, been teaching in synagogue. He didn't go the religious route. He was a carpenter for his father's business. He hasn't stood out apart from understanding the scriptures and living a righteous life. And then all of a sudden, he's doing miracles, and he's teaching with the authority of God himself. It would have been rather jarring, (laughs) you know. Okay, he just said that he has authority to speak on God's behalf. This is a new development. Yeah. Um, You know, (laughs) you would have been – it would have been jarring for sure. It is interesting, though, to, to think about that. Mary obviously had experienced a lot of supernatural events surrounding the birth of her son. Obviously, she Mm -hmm. knows she got pregnant without – human help you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so she would have known that this child was divine in some sense special in some sense but i still think the rea- that the totality of it had not dawned on her until these things began to happen and then finally until his death and resurrection mm-hmm. um i know that you know because we know for example i mentioned earlier that the two james apostles were not the author of the book of james but in fact, the author of the book of James was the half-brother of Jesus, one of Jesus' physical brothers, a son of Mary and Joseph. And this was somebody who prior to, you know, in Jesus' lifetime, um, there's no record that he went around saying, yeah, my brother's the son of God. Hmm. But after the resurrection, 
He laid mm-hmm. down his life for that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fearlessly laid down his life for that truth. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things, I love archaeology, and one of the things that has just been affirmed and validated is they found an ossuary um, in Israel that was the ossuary. It's a bone box where your bones are buried once your body rots away, and it belonged to James. And the inscription on it is something like it's, it's James, the son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. And they know that this is James, the one who wrote the book, Jesus' brother, because no ossuary box ever mentions, you know, the brother of. All of them as, you know, I'm Sam, the son of Jim, you know, right. who was the son of, you know, and they go on down the paternal line. No one ever mentions a brother. Why would you do that? Right. But this is James, the son of Joseph, the, and make sure to mention brother of Jesus because Jesus was obviously a really important figure. That's a big mark for James. Yeah. And so we actually have his bone box where, you know, he goes from thinking – you know, my brother is not in his right mind. What are we doing? We need to go bring him home. I don't believe all this stuff necessarily to where he gives his life. You know, the bones that are found in that ossuary that, you know, recognize that he is the brother of Jesus were martyred yep. for yep. believing that Jesus was God and that he defeated death. Yeah. Um, it's pretty fascinating. But he absolutely turned a corner and <laughs> believed in Jesus and gave his life for his brother. So next we have that passage that uh, we alluded to earlier in which we're going to hear um, Jesus talking about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Verse 22, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons and he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house." Now, I think that what Jesus is saying right there is, you know, he's saying the reason I can do this is because I can bind the strong man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My authority so, trumps his authority. Yeah, you look at the missions. What he's saying is, okay, let's – you've got two kingdoms. You've got a kingdom of darkness that revels in death, that revels in destruction, that revels in, you know, all of – its entire mission is to bring the world into darkness and suffering. Okay, well, if, if that kingdom is, is moving in that direction and you say that I'm empowered because they didn't know what to make of miracles, honestly. You know, they, it was like this must be dark arts. Um, and so they say – and Jesus is saying, okay, if if I'm empowered by Satan, why am I doing everything that runs counter to the mission of Satan? I'm not bringing death and destruction. I'm healing. I'm restoring. I'm bringing people to the Lord. I'm bringing people to repentance. All of my miracles are driving people closer to the Lord, more into life, farther away from darkness and death. That makes no sense. If I were empowered by Satan – I would be doing satanic things, but right. all my miracles are for public good. Right. And that name Beelzebub, it's you've probably heard in the Old Testament the god Baal. That's the root of it, Beelzebub. But it literally means Lord of the Flies, and it was like 
a dung god. So it's it's literally the prince of death. When, where do you find flies? You find flies over waste and decay and and you find them over dead things that are decomposing. And so they're they're being particularly pointed when they say Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Um, and Jesus is like, really? You know, I'm actually the op- opposite of that. This world naturally is is venturing off into decomposition and death and withering away. I'm restoring it. I'm reversing the curse. So that makes no sense why someone empowered by Satan would undermine Satan. But in no, no, no. The real reality is I'm stronger than him, and I have bound him, and I'm bringing the power of resurrection to overcome the power of death in this world. And I'm going to plunder his house of all the slaves that he has here in this world. I've come to release them and to take them home with me. Right. So verse 28, this is where we get into the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. So blasphemy itself is not the problem. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So first of all, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, then as I understand it, would be to attribute to God, to attribute to the Holy Spirit, that it's it's Satan, basically, to, 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 mm-hmm. to say that the Holy Spirit is, that a work of God is a work of the devil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and... You know, it's, it's counterintuitive, but what Jesus is saying here is actually an offer of mercy. Um, we, we don't see it that way because we immediately want to think about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and we forget the context of this. But they've just come to God in the flesh, God the Son, and they've accused the Son of being demonic, right? And, and Jesus' answer to them is, you know, you're saying all this to God. It's it's the ultimate blasphemy. You're accusing God in the flesh of being Satan or empowered by Satan. And what does he say? All sins will be forgiven the children of man. You know, whatever you say about me, whatever you do to me, even, even the people who fix me to the cross, they're going to be forgiven. And all the blasphemies that they hurled, me, hurled at me on the cross, all of that is going to be forgiven. But... If you blaspheme the spirit that leads you to truth, if you feel the nudge as I'm talking to you and you feel the nudge, this I, I, he's compelling. Like, I see this. He is the Christ. I need to put my faith in him. And the Holy Spirit is compelling you to move in that direction. And you blaspheme the Holy Spirit and you say, even, even this urge is demonic. I refuse. I will never, ever listen to the power of the Holy Spirit then you can't be forgiven because if you if you reject the holy spirit the movement of the holy spirit the very vehicle by which forgiveness comes how can you be forgiven it's you that rejected it so the related question of that is where he says but is guilty of an eternal sin mm-hmm. and in the king james this was controversial because it said unforgivable not eternal mm-hmm. and um so the question is if they did that one time in their life, are they then forever damned? Or is it possible for them to – in other words, is the is the right word eternal? Because when I look at this and I'm saying he's guilty of an eternal sin, I'm like, well, yeah, for as long as he continues to do it. 
In other words, if mm-hmm. somebody takes this position and and actually does blaspheme blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, they're 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 denying the Spirit of God. If they stop mm-hmm. doing that, well, then it's no longer an eternal sin. It's like it's or is it a one and done? I think that's the controversy in the church. Is this a one and done, or is this a you can repent from this too? Yeah, I think it's it's a hardness that sets in where it's a continually a continual thing. So the the words that are there, you know, when it says whoever blasphemes against the spirit never has forgiveness. Think of that as like it's ongoing, and that's why when it, the King James translates the next part when it says, "But he's guilty of an eternal sin," it really is. It uses a word that means everlasting, right? It it it, it will never go back on itself. And the way that I make sense of that is it's in a parable that Jesus tells of the Lazarus and the rich man. If you remember that parable, um, there's a rich – I'll summarize it really quickly to make my point maybe maybe really quickly. <laughs> but Lazarus is this poor man who is you know, devastated. He's got sores all over him. He comes to the rich man's house just hoping that he'll throw out some trash and food for him. And this guy is really wicked. He is. He lives a lavish lifestyle. He's all about himself. He shows no mercy at all for the poor around him. He's entirely self-absorbed, and we're told that he dies and goes to hell. And the fascinating part about the story is when he is pictured in hell and he's in torment, the only thing that he's asking for is give me a drop of water that I may find a moment of relief. There's, there's nothing in him that says, oh my goodness, I have sinned against God. I need his pardon. I need his forgiveness. Please give me a chance. I want out of hell. He doesn't want to go into the presence of God. He, he doesn't ask for that, which is pretty wild. He merely wants some relief being separated from God for all of eternity. And I think part of what Jesus is saying here, and this is probably not a majority position. I think it's probably certainly not a majority position. When he says that if you resist and blaspheme the Holy Spirit and and you endure in that, then you're guilty of a sin that will never go away. On the other side of death, there's no forgiveness. There's no repentance. And mm. the judgment, if you don't yield to the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes and calls you to repentance and you resist and say, no, I will not, mm. and death takes you. There's no forgiveness. It's an everlasting sin to forgive him because what is the Spirit's job? When Jesus talks about the role of the Spirit, what is the Spirit's job? The Spirit's job is to come into the lives of people and to bring light and to bring them to Jesus. Right. The Spirit is always pointing to Jesus. And so if you reject the Holy Spirit, what you're doing is rejecting the one who's pointed you to Jesus. And if you do that, you have found the one sin that will leave you in punishment forever. There's no relief from it. Yeah. The only hope you have to get forgiveness is to listen to the voice of the Spirit, which is pointing you to Jesus. That's your only hope. Yeah. And if you blaspheme him, you can blaspheme Jesus, mm-hmm. and Jesus is like, that's, you know, I'll, I'll take it. I'll tell you know, but if you blaspheme the Spirit, you're resisting the, the Spirit's compulsion to you to yeah. give your life to Christ and seek forgiveness. And if you resist him, it's an everlasting sin. Mm. The, the, the rich man is in hell never wanting to get out of hell. He doesn't want to be in the presence of God. Why? Because that sin of resisting the Holy Spirit is an everlasting sin, okay. and he stays miserable in hell forever. 
That's really good, Sam. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way. I'd always been focused on the eternal, unforgivable nature in this life. I hadn't been thinking about the, you know, on the other side. I like that. I think you're right. I think that's that's very good. I like that explanation. Yeah, and and you know, I've I've heard a million pastors, and I think this is also right that if you're, you know, you remember like five years ago or something, they had the YouTube challenge, the the blasphemy challenge. Where, you know, people who are really angry at the church or who, you know, hate religion or whatever, they were challenging one another to go post videos on YouTube. I think it was YouTube. This is before TikTok, I think. Um, but where they were posting videos of themselves saying, I, blasph- I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And, you know, that what they were saying is, I committed the unforgivable sin. I'm going to hell and I'm proud of it, you know, kind of thing. And it was really egregious and it's really terrible. But I don't think that's what they think it is. You know, it's not, you know, I've done this one thing one time and now, even if I want to, if I, if I go, oh my goodness, I take it back. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I've sinned. Like, it's not that God goes, well, you know, you, you did the, you did the blasphemy challenge. Sorry, you're out. That's not what this is teaching. Okay. Okay. Because I do think that there is an element within the church that says that. Oh, there's a big element. That's why I said I'm the minority position. There is. And I think that they say that if you say that one time, oh, you're done. That's it. You know, you've committed the unpardonable sin. Again, we're reducing God to a rule. <laughs> you know, that's like, true. Oh, God's in a box. He can't do anything. That's you know, true. Don't don't tie knots. Don't untie knots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like I like the Caston Smith version on this one. I'm going to go with that. I think but, I think you're right. But I the think, reality is, what does the Spirit do? Not only does the Spirit point you to Jesus. But the Spirit convicts you. And so if you find yourself ever going, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I did that, and I'm really concerned that my soul is in danger, guess what's happening to you at that moment? The Holy Spirit is at work in you, convicting you of sin, which means what? You haven't blasphemed him. Yeah. And if you if you yield to him, you're not blaspheming. You haven't passed by this, this threshold, which right. is death, to where forgiveness is no longer available. If you feel the Spirit convicting you to repent – it is never too late. Repent. Right. right. And forgiveness is available to you. Yeah. What did you it's, say before we started? You said if it's something that you worry about, you're not guilty of it. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> by, by definition, if the Spirit's convicting you, the Spirit hasn't forsaken you. Right. So if you're worried that you might have committed the unpardonable sin, you haven't. <laughs> <laughs> True. So, and, and we would urge you to remain open. To the moving of the Spirit who has come, Jesus says, to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He's come to lead us to the truth. Amen. So we have one more short passage here at the end of chapter 3 about Jesus' mother and brothers. Verse 31, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Hey, hey! Your mother and your brother. The hey, hey is not there, by the way. I just added that. <laughs> your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Like, it's time to go home now, Jesus. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And I think that that is a really... It's it's a really sweet statement because mm-hmm. I will say that the you know the relationships and the the that I have formed over the years with fellow believers you know I'm I'm close to my brothers and I'm close to my parents um, we're family we're blood that's never going to change we love each other we care for each other um, 
But the relationships that I have formed through the bonds of faith, through the bonds of a common faith, have been every bit as dear to me mm-hmm. or, or more so in some cases even. And I'm sure it's been that way for my brothers and my parents also. They've had their good friends and everything else. But in my case, it's been the common faith has been the thing that's been the centerpiece of why it was that we became friends. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that, let me tell you something. You know, you're, you're looking for family. You're looking for relationships. You're looking to belong somewhere. This is where you belong. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, the, the New Testament will make, it, make a big point that, you know, the first life you're, you're coming out of blood, but this, this new life is coming in the spirit. And, you know, I look at my family and I love my family dearly, you know, going to see my mom who's, who has taken a turn for the worst and, and her cancer, a turn for the worst in her cancer. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of bracing for that. You know, I love her to pieces. Um, no, I'll see her in glory. I'm, you know, my dad and my brothers, you know, we butt heads and like any family. And I love them to pieces, but we're bound by bloodline. Right. You know, we're bound by 18 years raising me up in the house and loving me with everything you got. And that is really powerful. And it's like we, we have this hard time imagining that there could be a bond that's even stronger than that. But what Jesus recognizes that we haven't yet experienced to the full measure is we're going to be born again, you right. know, and we're going to be born again in a spiritual sense um, and in a physical sense eventually. But the cost of of what that means to bring us about, and the fact that we are together not for eighteen years as a family, or you know, for however long we live this life, we're going to be a family, brothers and sisters, worshiping the Father for all of eternity, and the bonds that we will sense in the eternal thing, scheme of things by faith are going to be so much stronger, like not comparable even to simple bloodlines. Um, so we experience that like you're talking about here in this life. But Jesus has the benefit of being able to understand what's coming for eternity, and he sees all that. You know, common interests form the bond of most friendships and relationships mm-hmm. in your life. So, you know, the skeptical person is listening and saying, so you got you have going to church in common. Like, yeah, but <clears throat> there have been times when that's the only thing that I've had in common with someone. And I have still formed a close relationship with them. Mm-hmm. There have been times when I have been friends with someone that literally we disagree on everything mm-hmm. in terms of how we live our lives practically. But we agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. We mm-hmm. agree that he died for our sin. We agree on the gospel. We agree on the essentials of the faith. We are brothers in the Lord, sisters, brother and sister in the Lord. We And, and I have formed a very deep and close bond with people who I otherwise would not have given any thought to at all. And it's been a genuine thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned you can have bonds with somebody who has common interests with you. So, like, we're Gators fans. Oh, yeah. You know, so, so we can, you know, go Gators and go we Gators. love Tim Tebow and, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. But, but the, more, the more you get towards an experience that's deeply shaping of your life, you know, I went to the University of Florida. You gave a lot of money to the University of Florida. I did. Two children. Two children. <laughs> so, so like, but you find, you know, people who go through cancer together, 
are even tighter bound. People who go through wars together, even if they didn't serve in the same company, they're even tighter. People who survived you know, the Holocaust together, there's a, a bond that comes with that that just the more intense the experience, the more intense the bond. And you know, I think one of the things that's that's cool is I can take somebody who I have absolutely no <laughs> nothing in common with. They don't like sports. They don't like the Gators. They don't like you know anything that I'm interested in. But they believe that the God of the universe saw them in such desperate condition that He came into this world and gave His life for them to love them and to see them where they are and to sing over them. And you know, a person who genuinely understands that kind of a gift, that kind of love, and just basks in worship over how good God is and how desperate their condition was without him and how they had been rescued out of literally an eternal death, something far worse than anything you know, else imaginable, and yet we were rescued. And I can hold up the same banner and say, me too. I was, I was in that state. And man, we have a good Savior, and we're running under that common banner. That banner is more precious than any circumstance. Um, and there's plenty of precious circumstances, but it is more precious than anything this world could offer that could bind me to another person. This is the God of the universe who gave his life to purchase me alongside my brothers and sisters. There's nothing greater to bind you together with another person. And the title Brothers and Sisters is probably, <laughs> it's probably just the best analogy that we can have of the kind of of unity that we will one day have yeah. and the kind of love for one another that we will one day have when it's perfected. And I am looking forward to that day. Yeah. Well, that is a good word, my friend, and I think it's the one that we're going to have to end on. We hope that you've enjoyed your time with us, folks, and that it's been profitable for you. Uh, for those of you that are inclined to do so and are of a praying sort, um, I would solicit your prayers that I re- that I can uh, – obviously, you can still hear from my voice that a little bit of struggle here. So do pray that uh, you know God clears the pipes and uh, finishes this, this healing that's going on now uh, from my uh, COVID that's not COVID. I don't know. How do we describe this? <laughs> <laughs> I just know – I just know – that I got a shot in the arm and then I got sick. That's all I'm saying, you know. <laughs> so you do with that what you will. Um, so anyway, um, if you would like to correspond with us, you can do so. Our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O, vistachurch.com, where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash out of water. You can also find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as in our free Rio Vista Church smartphone app. Sam and I will be back next week with more from the Gospel of Mark on the identity of Jesus, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us, and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.